This is the Art of Dental Finance with Art Wiederman. Brought to you by the Academy of Dental CPAs. Whether it's taxes, investing, or planning wisely, Art is your guide to make your dental practice as profitable as possible. Here's your host, Dental CPA, Art Wiederman. And hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Art of Dental Finance with Art Wiederman CPA. Uh, I'm Art Wiederman, and I'm a dental-specific CPA. My practice of 35 years is located in Southern California in uh, the city of Tustin, uh, close to Anaheim, which is where Disneyland is. Uh, we represent about 250 dentists in our CPA practice, about 175 practices, and um, I am also a proud member of the Academy of Dental CPAs. Uh, we helped form that group. I helped form that group back in 2001. We are 24 CPA firms across the United States that represent 9,000 dentists. And folks, if you're not working with a dental-specific CPA, this is Art Wiederman CPA broken record talking. If you're not working with a dental-specific CPA, you really, really should be. There's lots of benefits uh, about that. We're actually going to do part of an episode about uh, why you should be working with a dental CPA down the road here. But today I have, uh, again, one of my dear friends in dentistry. It, it is so cool to have been in a profession working with with wonderful thousands of dentists over the years, lecturing, um, consulting uh, with dentists. And, and, and you meet all these great professional people that, that help dentists. You meet bankers, you meet attorneys, uh, and you meet coaches. And today, one of my dear friends in dentistry, Bob Spiel, um, who's from Utah and works all over the country, uh, who I've known for a long time, uh, is going to be my guest. And we're going to talk about why 70% of associateships fail. Now, I did an episode uh, back in late 2019 about partnerships and associateships, a very broad brush. But when Bob and I were talking, and I've wanted, he's been on my hit list to be on this show for a long time, and we got him today. Um, uh, you know, we were talking about like, what would be great? Do we want to talk about scheduling or financial arrangements or all the exciting stuff? Or that was sarcasm, by the way. Um, or do we want to talk about something else? And Bob, without hesitation, says, Art, I want to talk about this topic of associateships because I have some specific experience. And Bob's got a program that helps doctors from soup to nuts uh, make their associateships uh, successful. So we're going to get to Bob in a moment, and you're going to love listening to him because he's got some amazing insights, uh, not only to this topic, but but into everything in dentistry. I'm sure we'll hit a lot of different uh, high points with Bob. Uh, if you want to get a hold of me in Southern California, my telephone number is 714-259-0505. If you're looking for a dental CPA in Southern California, uh, that's what we do. We would love to talk to you. Uh, if you want to email me a question, a comment, a suggestion for a future program uh, or a future guest, I would love to hear it. Uh, I'm at artweederman at gmail.com. Uh, if you want to look at all of our prior podcasts, and I believe this is number 57, we're into our second year, very exciting uh, about that. Uh, go on to our website, which is www.hmwc, H is in Harry, M is in Mary, uh, W is in Wiederman, and C is in Charlie, www.hmwccpa.com. Go to the resources tab, go to the podcast link, and you will find all the podcasts, including this one that we're recording with Bob today. Um, and if you're looking for a dental-specific CPA anywhere in the United States of America, we are all over the place. You cannot get rid of us, folks. <laughs> we're, we're, like, we're like termites. We crawl all around. We're much better than termites. We give great financial and tax advice and advice on your business. Uh, go to our website, www.adcpa.org, and click on the map, and you'll find the dental CPA firm that is a member firm in your area. And I promise you, you will not be sorry. All right, so let's get to our guest today. Um, I met Bob Spiel through a common client, and our common client is a large uh, group general dental practice in the southwestern United States, and Bob and I have been working together with these guys for a long time, and it's really fun when you get to work with a team. You have a CPA, you have a coach, 
And you have doctors, and this group is just, these folks are as good as it gets. Um, I, uh, I visit them once a year, and it's always, they're just engaging, wonderful people. I've gotten to know their families, and, um, and I've gotten to know Bob through this process, and I had never met Bob until I went to the Dental Intel Symposium in, um, outside of Snow, well, in Snowbird, Utah, about three months ago. Bob and I had never met. And in fact, it took us almost to the end of the program until we got around because there were so many people. But uh, Bob is just really, really sharp and has really, really helped um, this particular group. And he and I have talked on many occasions. And as I mentioned earlier, one of Bob's, uh, we'll call it passions in in working with clients is helping them with associates. So today we're going to talk about the 70% failure rate in associateships, why they fail, why you should have an associate. Um, when you hire an associate, what do you look for? How do you make it work? So we're going to talk about all of that. Let me tell you a little bit about Bob, and I'll let you uh, let him tell you a little more about him. Uh, Bob actually started uh, in the agriculture industry. Uh, he went to University of California at Davis, which is an agriculture school. Uh, got his degree in agriculture science and management. Uh, and then he got his MBA. Um from BYU in 1988, uh, and he's been a dental, we call him a concierge coach uh, for many years. So, Bob Spiel, my good friend, welcome to the Art of Dental Finance. Very, very happy to be here, Art. Thanks for the invite. Well, thanks for coming on. I know you're a busy guy helping dentists all over the country. And so, um, when we were chatting before the show, you, you mentioned that right out of college, you went to um, uh, you went to work for actually for Ford Motor Company. Is that correct? I did. Yes. And, and you you had a story yeah. about how it kind of influenced you into your career. Why don't you talk a little bit about that? You bet. Love to. Yeah. I right after my MBA, I had a chance to go work for Ford, and you know this was back in the the early nineties. They seemed like a very impressive company. I had quite a few um, classmates of mine that had went to work for them as well. And, you know, come to find out, long story short, that a big company and one of the reasons that I work in dentistry is, is I'm not the big company type of guy. All right. I love to work in small businesses. And I think dentistry is, is a quintessential small business. Um, there's so much you can do, but that's we'll talk about that in a little bit. But at Ford, a couple of things that were just really fundamental to the rest of my career. Uh, one was that I found out that I really am a car guy. I love cars. Uh, they are pieces of art and no pun intended. No pun intended. I was just about to say that. No, no pun. In- yes, I know you were. Yeah. No pun intended, but they really are. Especially when you can, when you've gone into a design studio and you see the whole process of taking this from back in those days out of clay and turning it into this massively gorgeous, um, tool that that does amazing things for us. It's just really cool. But I think the other thing that I found was just by accident. And, and you know, they say that that lives in history turn on very small hinges. Um, there was one of those hinges that happened with me one day, Art, when I was brand new at Ford and working out in the employee gym one morning. Um, I'd kind of been befriended by one of the I'd say kind of junior level executives and he and I would work out together and we're early nineties. We're working on a stair machine. If you remember those beasts that were supposed to help us become stronger and stronger. And they hurt my knees. (laughs) They hurt more than just that. They hurt my pride. (laughs) Come on, man, give me a treadmill, but please don't ask me to climb stairs. I did too many of those in in high school football, but, um, so, you know, I'm here on the stair machine, we're, we're pumping away, and he, and he looks at me between his breasts and says, hey, Bob, <laughs> are you going to go see Deming? And, and I'm huffing away saying, <laughs> who's Deming? And he says, well, he's just the guy that taught the Japanese everything that they, they know to do with building their cars. And I just stopped dead in my tracks, and I said, what's his name? He said, Edwards Deming said, I've never heard of him. And he said, well, you need to go and listen to this guy. Well, I'm not the only guy that's never heard of him. The irony is, Art, that 
everything that we're going to be talking about today really stems from some fundamentals that Deming taught. I, I got to sit in a sea of like 400 Ford employees while Deming taught this four-day lecture to a group of us in, in Dearborn, Michigan. Amazing guy. Uh, he, he, he was a genius. I don't know if you put him on the scale of an Einstein, but the guy was absolutely phenomenal. His background was that he was a statistician from Cody, Wyoming, country boy, but smart, 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 but humble. And he and a bunch of really smart guys figured out during the war effort how to build things better. And they created a process called statistical process control. The whole idea being this. Back in the manufacturing era of our country, the idea was that you'd build things to specifications. The problem is with that, that if you've got two parts that are built to specs, but they're both on the outside of the specifications, then they work together. That's when things go bad. And, and you think you and I, when we were kids, I mean, a car that had a hundred thousand miles on it was considered what used up junk, get it, get it sold, get it to the junkyard as fast as possible. Cause maybe it's got another 50,000 on it. and it, it, It's gone today. A car with a hundred thousand miles is just broken in. That, that's right. That to me, that's a new car. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It is a new car. My, mine's about to go over 200,000. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've had I've had cars that have gone over three hundred. Well, it's Deming who taught the Japanese how to do that. You see, the the funny story is that after the war, and after they'd figured out this methodology of of being able to manufacture at the time planes and tanks and bombs and hand grenades and everything better, he went to the big three automakers and said, "I can teach you how to build cars that don't break." And they laughed him out of the boardroom mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and said, you know what? If it breaks, guess what? They buy a new one. And that's what we want. Exactly. That's what we want. We right. want them to buy new ones. We, we don't want them to have cars that run forever. Right. So, so basically, as a kind of a forgotten man, he went to Japan in the early 50s and went and spoke to this industrial group that were just rebuilding their country and taught them this concept that quality is a function of the systems you employ. You don't inspect quality in at the end. Quality is built through your system. They listened to it, and the next day they said, Dr. Deming, we need you. So he moved to Japan, and he began to teach them everything that he knew. And it took them about... mm, 40 years to be able to finally be at the point where made in Japan was no longer equivalent to junk, but made in Japan meant, wow, this is a pretty awesome, you know, piece of manufacturing. So I got to listen to Deming and, and Deming changed my life because of that one phrase, quality is a function of the systems you employ. Okay. It's not inspected in at the end. Okay. So today, as we talk about this whole thing about associateships, I want your listeners to think in regards to what's the system. Because our, we've got a problem, big or bigger, inside the industry than what I found when I was an employee at Ford Motor Company where our cars were breaking and we didn't know how to fix them. 70% of the associateships in dentistry fail. Within one year. I see that. I, I, I see that, that, that. And we're going to talk about every step of the way here. But I absolutely yeah, yeah. see that. And, and, you know, what's ironic is that there are doctors that I, I share that stat with that have been in the industry for 20 or 25 years. And they all laugh, like, almost instantly and say, I think that number's low. I've had five associates and none of them turned out. I've had three, I've had four, I've had this, I've had that. And it's almost universal. None have worked out. But it's because we haven't taken a process approach to bringing these doctors on so that we're building quality into the entire stream of 
going from A, do they need an associate to B, who would be the ideal candidate to see how do we find that person to D, now let's vet them and set them up for success and then keep them moving towards the endpoint of either being an outstanding associate or becoming a partner. All right. So let, let's start down the road and, and, and take our listeners uh, through this roadmap of how do we find a, how do we create a successful associate for associateship? First of all, you've obviously got experience. Have you done a lot of this work? Uh, how, how many of these have you helped uh, doctors with? I've done a lot, Art, and I've got a 90% success rate. Ninety percent is good. That yeah. that 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 works. If I had a ninety yeah. percent success rate in my golf game, I might not be doing this work. I might be on the PGA tour. <laughs> well, no, I would never be on the PGA tour. I'd go crazy. I played. I played in a tournament over New Year's. It was a fun tournament, and even that was stressful. So I don't know if I could handle that. But you wouldn't. You wouldn't be doing a podcast right now. You'd be doing something else, right? Th- that's right. Exactly. I would be doing something else. But um, uh, now I enjoy. I love my podcast, and everybody knows that. So. So now, as far as this goes, uh, this is not only, Bob, for senior doctors are looking, but but you've got all these young dentists coming out of school. Uh, wow. 99% of them are not going to start or buy a practice right out of school. They're going to look to be That's an associate. Great. So so tell us who this is for and, and, and why it's important. This is, this is for everybody in the industry. This is for – your point is perfect. It's for senior doctors – who are looking to bring somebody on either because they're growing or because they're in a replacement mode or they're looking to bring on additional uh, locations. This is for that brand new doctor who's just climbing out of residency or just climbing out of dental school who doesn't want to be one of these casualties, who okay. doesn't want to be roadkill after a year, after uprooting their family or themselves, moving to a new city, starting the whole process and in the end realizing you know what this isn't right it's not yeah. working out yeah all right so let, let's talk about so so why what is the current state of this issue of associateships and and why are they failing well they fail because we're we're using to, to go back to an analogy we're using an inspect in mode Instead of a build quality in mode. What does inspect in mean? Meaning that we're finding a body. We're hoping that they will fit. We're plugging them in and stepping away. Okay. Instead of a really vetting the practice. And I've got, I've got a, a system that I call vet, set and net. Okay. I'm I'm going to let you go through that. How do we do that? Thank you. We And we'll go into further detail in a little bit, but we vet the practice first. A, to know, are they a viable candidate for an associate to be brought on? B, if they are, if, if, if the numbers within the practice indicate that there is room for a second or third or fourth or whatever the number is doctor to climb on board, then we have to also create this vetting profile for the ideal candidate to climb on board. This isn't an any dude or any girl will do model, but we've got to be really clear and intentional about what is the culture of this practice, what is, what is the culture of the doctors within the practice, and who would climb into that and be a success. Okay, it's so really you- like matchmaking and then creating a marriage as opposed to just a shotgun wedding. Okay, so you vet the practice, you then vet the candidates, you then set them up for success in terms of what the contract, how the contract is set, how the team is trained to work with this new doctor, who works with the new doctor, and then how do we keep things moving forward for a year to 18 months as this new doctor experiences what it's like to work in private practice. Uh, okay. That, and that, that sets the table. So let's, let's walk through this. All right. So how does a practice know that it needs an associate? Um, I, I mean, I, I always say if a doc, if a senior doctor is booked out three, four five weeks, pretty solid, that's a pretty good indication, but that's obviously you're going to go much deeper than that. So what are the reasons we need an associate and, 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 and when should we be looking? 
Well, I think you bring up an excellent one to start with. It's, it has to do with busyness. Busyness by and of itself will indicate, is there a demand from patients that really says, you know what, we need another one of you. You need to be replicated. But you can also go deeper than that to see what is the total patient base? What is their treatment acceptance levels looking like? what type of complex procedures are being done. And there's really 17 points that you can drill through and determine is this practice ready for another doctor to climb on board. Okay. Both that things that are apparent and things that aren't and in giving yourself an indicator, you know what, does this look like a good time? Now, one of the fallacies in the industry is to get busy. All I have to do is just add another doctor. That is not true any longer. May have been true 30 years ago or 25 years ago. It certainly isn't true today. But you've got to have the internal indicators all point, not all, but I'd say two thirds of them pointing to, you know what, it's time. It's time. For instance, is the senior doctor booked four, five, six weeks out? How many patients do you have in an inactive pool that aren't back into hygiene? because you simply don't have the capacity either with hygienists or doctor exams to be able to handle them. What type of treatment acceptance do you have? How many procedures are you referring out? And also another thing that's a little hard to determine, but with honest conversation with the senior doctor, how much dentistry are you actually driving past? Because you view it as something, I'll pick that up in six months right now. I'm just too busy. Oh my goodness. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you just you just set off like ten different podcasts, right? Right, just right with what you just what you just said. I mean, I, I can't tell you. I, I tell the story of how I, I get office managers calling me and say, Art, he let six crowns walk out that my two year old could have diagnosed, and uh, you know, and, and it, it's true. And and so mm-hmm. okay, so um, you know, it, it's it's not, and and that's the other thing, doctors, is that you know everybody says. Oh, I'm not busy. I'm not busy. I need new patients. I need to go spend like $50,000 on marketing. Now, some of the some of my best friends in the industry are in dental marketing and they do a great job. But but Bob, I wouldn't it be truthful to say that if you go into these dashboard programs that you and I use uh, and you look at case like, acceptance like and you <laughs> Yeah, and you look at and you look at this and, and you look at the reappointment percentage which is in the 50% range. And you look at 1,300 patients that don't have a future appointment, the, the, the growth in the practice is not a new patients. The growth in the practice is, is in your software. It's in your current patient base, isn't it? Exactly. Keeping the patients that you have. Yeah. So when you do this evaluation, Bob, of, of, of whether they need an associate, you're looking at all of these things, right? Exactly. Yes. You have to. Yeah. You have to do the homework up front. Because if these aren't in alignment, then you've got to reach a go-no-go decision. Right. Do we do this or do we not? And if the decision is not, then, okay, what's next? What do we have to fix within the practice? Because my experience is any, any practice that really is delivering superior service in a very healthy way is going to grow. Right. And as they grow... They will have to look, and it's a good problem to have, but it's still a problem. They've got to look at what do we do with the excess of patients. Exactly. And you're right. New, new patients are part of the formula, but you know what? They're only one piece of the puzzle. So many opportunities are lost because we aren't looking at the back door. Yep. Which is all the, all the patients that flow out of the backside through attrition. Wow. I got a new patient, and they never come back. Yeah, and by not handling cancellations and no shows appropriately. Exactly. All right. So let's let's again. I I I wish I had five days to talk to you about this, but I don't. All right. So now now we've figured out. You've so given us some great reasons as to. The, yeah, we've gone through the seventeen points of am I ready? Right. And if the answer is yes, if if, if the decision is you know it's a go, let's let's pursue this further. Then. Instead of just jumping out there and seeing who's there, and this is one of those quality steps that really matters, you have to determine what I call the avatar 
of the ideal candidate. All right, talk about that. What, okay, what are the characteristics of the person who's going to be the right fit? I'm not going to use the word perfect. Nobody's perfect, but ideally, what are the characteristics? And by this, you really need to be exhaustive with where are they from? What type of dentistry have they done? Uh, what is their personality like? Are they quiet? Are they more extroverted, etc.? And you can brainstorm these different characteristics with the idea that these are the things that will help them fit with you within the practice with the senior leadership and with your patients. Once you've got that list, you have to divide it into two categories. What are the givens and what are the wants? Okay. This is another thing I learned at Ford, but not from Deming. So go through givens and wants. Givens are absolute. The wants are things that you would like, but they're not an absolute. An absolute is something if they don't meet this criteria, they're out. It's just a strikeout punch. A want can be scaled on a scale of one to 10 because you're not all equal. And if it's a really high want, it's a 10. If it's an intermediate want, it's a five. But if you go through the whole interview process, Art, and as you go through the selection process, you're continually coming back to these criteria. Let me just give you a quick example. Sure. In, in, in a practice that we know of, unfortunately, we had one of the associates that didn't work out. Right. Now, I have to take my hat off to these doctors. We did the right thing for this doctor, helped him find another place. He is doing very well now, and everything ended super professionally. Right. He's still in the same town, all right? But there was one of these criteria that in the end became a strikeout punch. And it was that while the, the senior doctors in the practice are a little more extra, excuse me, a little more introverted, this doctor himself was an extreme extrovert on the very high side to the point where he just couldn't help himself from talking. And he would inject himself into conversations and always had to be asking questions. And over about a year's time, it just became a sticking point to where they decided, you know what? I can't imagine having this doctor here for only 10 years, but we want to do the right thing for him. And they did that. I, Bob, about, I remember the conversation. It was that the doctor talked so much that the patients got confused. Wasn't that what it was? That was part of it, yes. But he also talked too much with the doctor himself, too. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and this, okay. these, these guys are pretty conservative, yeah. They're, they're, they're great, great individuals, pretty conservative though. And they, it's not that they're introverts, but oh, no. this, this one doctor just had to inject himself so much that they felt like they never had time to think. And you're right with patients. Again, he, he, he tried to treatment plan while he was talking to them and they would get super confused. And it was all this circular situation that I tried to coach him on. And again, he didn't get better. Now there was one little mistake we made because we kind of settled for this doctor saying, you know what, he's probably the best thing we've got out here and we're willing to take this chance. But had we really sat back and realized, you know what, he didn't meet this given, right. we never would have hired him in the first place. Now, fast forward, when we found the next associate to take his place, oh baby, were we careful about the givens and the wants? Absolutely. Were we very intentional about the type of personality we were going to bring on board? Absolutely. And now we've got a doctor who's fantastic. It's because we did the homework up front and made sure that we let the model work for us. And we didn't make a quick decision based upon immediacy. But Bob, let me becomes one of the biggest challenges is that you feel like you've got to get somebody in. You've got to get somebody in. And then you make a bad decision, and then you regret it. Yeah, no, you're, you're absolutely right. I'll throw out two things, and I'd love to hear you comment on that. Number one, I was an yeah. employer until I merged my firm two years ago. 
for 33 years. I hired, fortunately, I didn't have to hire a ton of people because for some strange reason, people seem to like working for me. Maybe I'm a softie or, or we just made a really nice place to work. But when I did, um, I'll hire attitude and I can teach skills, number one. And number two is for a dentist, the number one thing I want to hear out of the associate, the prospective associate's mouth is my number one concern is the health and well-being of my patients and not I want to make a bunch of money. Kind of comment to those two things. Yeah, it, that or that drives to this again. Part of the criteria is that you've got to be really, really clear about the value that this doctor brings to the table. Part of the way that we figure out what those values are is my firm uses a, a surveying tool. We use lots of different surveys, including disc surveys and career surveys. And and disc is a, a, a program that a lot of people in dentistry are familiar with to be able to really understand somebody's personality and communication decision-making style. We also use career surveys and a lot of behavioral-based interviewing as well as reference checking so that we know where this this doctor or, or, you know, potential associate's heart is and have a feel for what their drivers are. I agree with you. If, if their interest is that I've got to make my loan payment, that can be a real killer because if that doctor can't turn that value set around then they start to make a lot of bad calls. Exactly. Exactly. And what I found is you, you can have the right personality. You can even have the right set of values, but you also be able to have to be able to trust each other's dentistry and, and the treatment planning that we're doing and the procedures that are happening, the outcomes that come from all the doctors. So, I, I know that we're, we're, we're doing well with time, but I just want to jump to the next piece because we talked about vetting. Well, Bob, okay, before you, before you jump to the next piece, I want to give you an okay, opportunity yeah. to give out your contact information. Ladies and gentlemen, Bob, as you can tell, has a lot of experience in helping bring on associates. He, he's also an amazing concierge coach. So, Bob, quickly give out your contact information. How can folks get a hold of you? Yeah, thanks. Yeah, thanks, Art. Uh, easiest way is just my email address, which is bob at spielconsulting.com. That's S as in Sam, P like in Peter, I-E-L, consulting, all one word, dot com. Or, you know, they can text me at 208-520-6900. Again, that's 208-520-6900. And again, folks, if you go up on our website, www.hmwccpas, um, this uh, podcast will be up in um, – I believe in the middle, uh, middle to late January, uh, you'll be able to see, uh, you click on it, you'll be able to listen to the podcast, um, at, you know, as well as subscribing and please subscribe to our podcast. You'll get all of them when they're downloaded every Wednesday. Um, but you'll also see Bob's contact information. All right, Bob, you were going to start off on another point. You bet. Yeah. Yeah. So thinking about this as a process, we, we've talked about vetting the practice creating the avatar for the ideal candidate, then vetting the candidates through different survey tools, interview tools, really honing in and making sure that this person checks those boxes. And if they don't, especially if it's a given, then they're not a part of the pool. Even if it means that you've got to experience a little pain for a while. Uh, it, it pays so many dividends to wait to find the right person and not just plug somebody in. Once you've gone through that process, then how do you set this new associate up for success? Okay. How do we? Okay. What I found, number one, is you've got to be really clear with expectations up front. Expectations in terms of production and marketing to start with, as well as, I, I love the phrase Howard Fran uses that, a successful associate is humble and hungry. So part of setting them up for success, once they've got, well, once you've gone through the whole contract phase and, and you've established these rules for the road, you then also every month have formal chart reviews. And let me say that again. Every month you have formal chart reviews. This is something that I borrowed from my experience as a hospital 
CEO before I got into dentistry. And a chart review is an opportunity, especially for a new doctor, to present a complete treatment plan from soup to nuts, from how did the patient present, what was their history and physical, what did the treatment plan, what did the radiographs tell me, and then what was the outcome. Because you've got to establish this mentoring and there can be informal mentoring, which takes place on a very ad hoc basis between the senior doctors and the new associate. And that's great. But there also needs to be some points of accountability where this, this new associate also has an opportunity to really share some a, a case that went great and a case that they don't think went very well. Because those are bo- both learning experiences. Those are both learning experiences, exactly. And and. Anybody who's been at this game long enough understands that your biggest learning experiences come from your biggest mistakes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, How do you involve the team in this whole process, Bob? The team is involved, A, in establishing the avatar. What can this ideal, what does this ideal person need to look like? Then later on, once you have let's say two candidates that you feel fit that criteria, then the team is involved in interviewing them as well as getting to know them both at a personal and a professional level. Now the team ultimately doesn't have the ability to say, you know what, go with candidate A instead of candidate B. That ultimately resides with the senior doctor, but the team needs to have a voice because the team is going to be, one of the very key parts of making sure that this new associate succeeds. I'll tell you, Bob, process early on, they're going to start to cut this person's legs off halfway through when things don't go well, because they don't always go well. And even if they're little tiny mistakes, if they haven't been included early, they start to smell blood in the water and then things can go from bad to worse. And and, and you're absolutely right. Because when I hired people in my CPA firm, uh, I had my my three key people interview them and we would sit down and we'd look at the candidates. And I don't think I ever hired anybody that we didn't have a consensus on because you're absolutely right. I mean, if if the team says, well, I told you not to pick Joe or Susie uh, and you pick Joe or Susie. I told you they were going to fail, and, and, and maybe subconsciously they help them fail, right? Yeah, they do. They do. And, and here's what I found the beauty of creating this avatar early on, is that is then what you bring back to the team as you're working through this hiring decision. So you're not hiring based upon gut. You're hiring based upon mind and what you've learned and found. So it's, it's a beautiful tool to have that early and to have it as you make the decision so that way everybody can be on board and then you also train the team on what are the rules of the road for success with this new person and for instance if they see something take place what do they do how do they handle it what are the rules of the road for the senior doctor how did how does he or she set this new associate up for success in terms of how they talk about this person to their colleagues how do they introduce them over the phone how do they get them busy? What is the schedule going to look like? Oh, by the way, Art, to patients, you never, ever use the phrase associate. What do we use? They're a new, they're a new clinical partner. New clinical partner. But they're not I like that. I that learn stuff every week on this podcast. This is great. New clinical partner. It becomes a, a pecking order. Mm-hmm. It's a pecking order. And, and who wants to see the new associate? Ah, I get second best. But new clinical partner? Wow. Bob, do you like to put the the new clinical partner through training? I mean, I, I know that my doctors that are really successful, they, they I always tell tell dentists, pick your poison, um, Koi, Spear, Panky, LVI, uh, I mean, just, just any one of the or the great continuing education groups that are out there. Do, do you get do you get involved in that conversation too? Absolutely. That's part of setting expectations up front. Because this associate has to know that this is the path that they're going to be on. And there's no question that dental school and even residency and the first few years teaches 
from a single tooth to a quadrant style of dentistry, but you have to find that educational venue that be able to teach us this, the mouth as a system and to view things in a holistic standpoint. That doesn't happen by accident. That happens through really sharp education and partnering up with, you mentioned some of the best in the business. Right. Absolutely. So, okay. So we find the associate, we go through this vetting process. We, we look at the why, why do we need one? We involve the team and now we found, we found the winner and everybody's excited. What happens on day one? How do we start? How do we make this person successful? Number one, you've got to be able to know exactly what the scheduling protocols are. Typically, a new associate is going to have a portion of new patients come to them. They'll handle most of the limiteds. They'll also have production being referred to them by the senior doctor. But it's usually going to be the basics, fillings and extractions and basic crowns to start with. And that is, once again, setting expectations so the associate knows this is our path. Yes, you may have a degree and a license, but right now we're going to start things very narrow to make sure that everybody's on the same page and make sure that the outcomes are the way they should be and you're learning how to work within our systems and within our systems. So, and typically what you do are, is that you'll set up a, a contract so the first two to three months there's a, an income guarantee. So this doctor doesn't have to panic about, oh, gee, I've got to be making money right now. No, we're helping pay for this. Learning curve, dialing you up, becoming comfortable with how things go so that once the income guarantee is gone, you're already producing over and above the level and collecting over and above the level that you need to, to start to make the numbers that you have. Bob, do you like to, I, mean, I guess it depends on the practice. Do you start someone one day a week, two days a week, full time? I, I guess it depends, right? It, it honestly depends. The, the process that I've talked about is more for a full time. Okay. Associate, but it can also apply to a, a two-day-a-week associate, even a one-day. But I personally like to, if, if you can, start them at least two or three days. It's hard for somebody to be fully vested in a practice if they're only there two days a week. So I, I want to address something. Oh, yeah, I want to address something else that, that is, I mean, in any profession, whether you're talking about uh, an attorney, a CPA, um, a dentist, uh, uh, wh whatever. So, you know, you don't just walk in one day and you've been seeing a patient for 25 years and that patient comes in for a procedure and says, oh, by the way, you know, I'm still going to be here, but now you're working with Dr. Smith. That that doesn't go over really well. That How do we phase uh, how do we phase that associate into the relationship with the patient so that ultimately maybe they take over that patient? You start by making very clear introductions. Let me give you just a quick example. Please. There's a practice in New Mexico, not, not the client that we've been talking about, but another one that had an associate. Um, she was doing well, but decided to start a family and bless her heart, went and did that. And this senior doctor was basically doing two doctors' work by himself. The amazing thing was that he was able to pull it off for a year. We waited for the right person, but once we had the right person, we had the contract in place, we then started to make introductions very quickly, both through email, newsletters, to his entire patient base with a, a great introductory letter explaining that this is a hand-picked clinical partner gave his background and experience, why he's been chosen, and that we're so excited for you to meet him. For about the first six months, what's going to take place is this new associate won't be that busy. He'll be busy, but not that busy, and it's really important to come in and start to make introductions. And it can just be a quick two-minute. I'd like you to meet Dr. Smith, okay, my brand-new clinical partner, so happy to have him here, and I just I've told him all about you, and he's he's just thrilled to meet you. Dentistry, as you know, is all a relationship game, and and the sooner we can make those relationships work and feel good, then you can also have the discussion as a senior doctor about 
you know, I, Dr. Smith is my expert at that procedure. Right. So when you come back in, he's going to be, or she's going to be the one doing it for you. Set this person up in the patient's mind. The front desk has the same role in terms of how they schedule and how they introduce this doctor. That's why you never say, well, I've got Dr. X, you know, who can see it in five weeks, but Dr. Smith can see it tomorrow. He's the new associate. What are you going to do? You still want to go to, you know, the senior doctor. But if you can say, Dr. Wonderful, for instance, he's so popular that his next opening is six weeks from now. We, he does have, and you may have seen this email, he has a brand new handpicked clinical associate who is available next week. Would you like to come see him? Leave it in the patient's lab to make the decision if they want to say yes to that or not. But if you set it up appropriately for the right type of procedure, often patients will say yes if you've done a good introduction. And, and Bob, it but always comes back. Key for the, good. And then it's key for the senior doctor to also be aware that that handoff has taken place and drop in while the patient's in there. Mm-hmm. And doesn't it always come back with everything in dentistry to verbal skills? Absolutely. And, and there's training. Yeah. You you can help train. You can help train the front office. And I'm assuming that's part of what you do when you bring an associate in. Is you you're you're working with the the person at the front desk um, on on what to say to the patients. What, what about new patient? New patient calls the practice and says. Oh, my friend goes to Dr. Jones, and I've heard you guys have a great practice. Is that an opening to get that new patient to the new associate? The, the new, uh, tell me again, what are we calling them? Not an associate, the new new clinical partner. The new clinical partner. How is that an opening? I mean, how do we get new patients to that new clinical partner? Verbal skills. Once again, as you just mentioned, everything is verbal skills, and it's having a. The, the, the buy-in from the front desk to be excited to be able to bring a new patient to this doctor, then B, use the schedule as an opportunity to allow this patient to make a decision. A, the senior doctor is available four weeks from now. He's brought in a new clinical partner who is available, and I, I hardly ever will say tomorrow because it, it seems too immediate. But if you can say in two or three days or next week, he has an opening. You know, Linda Miles used to say, if you sound busy, you'll get busy. So, you <laughs> I want to seem, seem, seem desperate. Okay. I love but Linda. If he has an opening next, next week, I do too. I love her to death. Yeah. Um, he has an opening next week. He was handpicked by doctor, senior doctor. And I can't wait for you to meet him. Then leave it in the patient's hands and see what they say. Absolutely. How about the dentist and getting involved great, in the community? You know, that sounds oh. great to me. Oh, marketing is huge. Yeah. I, Gary Katie would teach people, when you're a brand new doctor in town, pretend that you're running for mayor. <laughs> I think it's a brilliant mindset. Well, politics today may not be the best way to go, uh, Bob, but we can talk about that. I don't know. Yeah, that may be true. Let's. Let's say a small town mayor. Right. There you go. 5,000 or under. There you go. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Or or, or maybe you're, you're the the newest. No, I won't say insurance salesman. Um, But let's just know that it's, it's all about relationships. So get out there first, meet the referring providers, especially those that are in your referral network, the specialists. If you're a GP, if you're a specialist, meet the GPs that refer to you, go to the study clubs, go to lunch, Go to dinner. And also, if you can, go with that senior doctor and let those handoffs take place so that you can build these relationships. But yes, get involved with the community as quickly as you can. Help people get to know you is a key thing for a new associate. Absolutely. And and one of the things that I teach in my course when we talk about transitions um, for doctors buying practice. Now, this is not a doctor buying. This discussion today is not about buying. Sure. This is about associateship. Yep. Live in the community that you work. How important is that? Mm-hmm. Very, very, very important because 
the community that you live in is going to be a community that's going to get to know you. And when they get to know you, they'll want to do business with you. Mm-hmm. If you live 20 miles away, it, it sends signals. Number one, <laughs> I may work here, but I don't like this town. <laughs> that's a very good point. Exactly. And people people understand that. But if you are involved in the community, they see you involved in the community, then they realize, well, this is this is a doctor who really wants to become a part of who we are. And that's so important. Oh, my goodness. Absolutely. Bob. So, okay. So, we did all this great work. You put this great system in place, which is fantastic. I wish we had time to go through all the the 17 different uh, things that you look at. Unfortunately, we don't. But we are dealing with human beings. Um, what if something after day one isn't going exactly the way we want it? Something's going wrong. What do we do? So glad you brought that up. A, you train the team up front. And I call these the rules of the road. So that if and when they see something, and they feel like they need to run to the senior doctor and say, well, Dr. Smith did it this way, but you always do it that way. The senior doctor has to be able to feel that concern with the point or the office manager, either one. What would you like me to do about it? If it is nothing to do with patient safety or anything to do with legality, you got to write it out for a little while and say, what can we do to support this doctor further? But the team also has to understand that if they see any concerns, take it to the senior doctor or office manager, but don't spread the rumors. Because nothing will stop an associate faster in its track than when one of the assistants sees the associate do it in a different way, then at lunch starts to share it with everybody, and then the whole team gets on the bandwagon of, well, they're just not going to work out. They just don't do it our way. There are lots of different ways to be able to do dentistry, and we've got to employ patients, strategic patients, understanding, and mentoring to help bring them on board. And no, they may not understand up front. Instead of criticizing, I think the question really boils down to, is there something that we could teach them? Okay. And then we knew that they need to know that we know that they don't. Right. 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 Well, obviously if it's patient safety or legality, then the senior doctor has to get involved. But rarely does that happen. It's usually style and procedures as well as equipment and supplies. Uh, okay. I got a couple minutes, Bob, I got a couple minutes left. I want yeah. to cover one more thing. We have this associate. This associate's been there six months, a year. Um, at some point, we're probably looking at partnership, right? You bet. Okay. What? Walk us through for a couple of minutes, just kind of the steps and when do we do this? I personally like to bring a – I don't like to go right to a 50-50 partnership. I like a 25% because it's not too much to bite off. But give me your thoughts as to, okay, we, we found the associate – this associate, this young man, this young woman is fantastic, and they're going to be our partner. What, what Walk us through some of the steps for the next, the next level. If that is the outcome, that as a, as, a, as a practice, you're already comfortable with that, then I'll rewind even further and say that the way that I like to approach it is, A, with an understanding Again, setting expectations. If you meet these expectations within 18 to 24 months, here's the opportunity to be able to buy in. And if you meet these expectations, guess what? We're going to value the practice at the day you buy in and then sell the practice, sell whatever portion at that day at the valuation of the day that you joined. So that they're actually creating some sweat equity. And feeling like they're, they're not building something and having to pay for it twice. The other thing that I really love to do when somebody is on a partner track, we already talked about the chart reviews and, and making sure clinically you're in alignment, but also for the first six months or set that usually the associate uh, pay after the income guarantee is going to be around 30% of collections. Yep. 
and then move that to 35, but that 5% goes into a side account, which is going to go towards their buy-in. Yep. I've done that many times. That's a, that's a great way to do it. I love about that. I love it because a, they feel like they are now starting to earn something towards their eventual buy-in, which also leads to more of their emotional buy-in. But the senior doctor also feels good about this because they know that there is this money being set aside that if for some reason this associate decides it isn't working out, then the money comes back. That's right. They lose it. There's a hook. hook. They lose it. Skin in the game. And and it's nice to have, yep, skin in the game is a really great thing to have on both sides. Wow. Well, Bob, uh, unfortunately, we have just about come to the end of our time um, this is a topic that is very, very important, not only for senior doctors, but for young associates looking for a home or an opportunity. Um, so, folks, if, if you have a situation where you've talked to your front office and you've talked to your team and you think it's time to bring in an associate and you don't really know how to do it, I, I would strongly encourage you to contact Bob. I'm going to let him give his contact information out. One more time, because I have, as have as has Bob, we have seen bad associates uh, ruin practices, and you cannot guarantee success. Uh, I mean, I've hired people for thirty three years. Bob, you you were in management. You, you don't know what you get until they walk in the door. I mean, I've hired CPAs in my practice. When they interviewed, I thought this was the next the next coming of the greatest CPA in the on the planet. And they turned out to be a total disaster. You don't know until they start working for you. But if you go through this um, logistical, uh, logical process that Bob has, use these 17 factors, um, you have a much greater chance for success. So, Bob, one more time, if, if they want to, if any of our listeners want to have just a conversation with you about, I'm thinking about bringing an associate or I have a bad associate or something, um, how do they get a hold of you? You bet. Two ways. Bob at SpielConsulting.com. And again, it's S as in Sam, P as in Paul, I-E-L, consulting, all one word, dot com. Or text me or call me at 208-520-6900. And Art, let me just close with this one thought. What we've described today is a process approach to bringing in the associate. And just like Deming taught Years ago, and I found out at Ford, quality, which and define quality as the, the, the superior outcome that you are seeking. Quality is a function of the systems you employ. We failed at this because we've never viewed it from a system standpoint. We found people, we've plugged them in, we've hoped they've done well, but too often, 70% of the time, they don't. It isn't a good match. But if you'll follow this process, and I'd be more than happy to take a call, talk to somebody about a situation that they have, or do they think they're ready, or they know they're ready, but they just don't feel confident in pulling this off, I'd love to visit with them about it. Because it's one of the most exciting things that I get to do is plug somebody in that everybody's excited about. Yep. That, the doctor, yep. the team, and the associate themselves. It's a formula for uh, a long-term relationship that's very successful. Bob Spiel, you are the consummate professional. I just love working with folks like you, and it's a pleasure, and I'm so glad you were able to share this great information. So thank thank you so much um, for your time and your expertise, and folks, I would encourage you to give them a call. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, again, as we wind this up, I want to give you some information. Again, if you want to get a hold of me in my office, I'm at 714-259-0505. Email me at artweederman at gmail.com. Uh, go to our website, www.hmwccpa.com. Uh, go to the um, resources tab and then go to the um, uh, podcast tab and you'll see all the podcasts, including Bob's uh, Bob Spiels and all of his contact information. And if you're looking for a dental-specific CPA anywhere in the United States, uh, go to our website, www.adcpa.org. Bob, you're, you're a mensch. Thank you so much for all your great information. 
Great to be with you, Art. All right. Thank you. And ladies and gentlemen, that will do it for this edition of The Art of Dental Finance with Art Wiederman. Thank you for listening. Please tell your friends about the podcast. Please subscribe. Please write a review. Uh, We'd love to hear from you. Send me an email. And we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. 